Hey, friend, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So today we have a different sort of guest, and he is actually not a homesteader. But uh, when I got an email with the potential of having him on the show, I could not pass it up because this is a topic that I think I know that you all are going to find very interesting. So a few episodes ago, I had David Montgomery and Anne Bickley on the show, and we talked about soil health. And a part of that interview, we discussed the devastating effects that chemicals, especially chemicals like glyphosate, have on soil microbes and how they can really just kind of go in there and destroy the health of the soil and then have a direct correlation to the nutrition content of our food as a result. So we had a great conversation around glyphosate and soil. But my guest today is going to take us into a different realm in terms of the effects of glyphosate on the human body. And you're just going to love this. I'll let him give you his introduction um, and, and kind of how he got into this world. But his name is Dr. Chadi Nabhan. He is board certified in internal medicine, hematology, and medical oncology, and has firsthand experience here because he was called in to be an expert witness in the 2018 Monsanto trials. So this is a behind-the-scenes look like no other. Buckle up. This is going to be an amazing episode. So welcome, Dr. Nabhan. Thank you so much, uh, Jill. I really appreciate the invite, and I'm equally excited to be with you and with your listeners and viewers. Yes, I'm, I'm so excited for this conversation. And um, maybe just to kick it off, can you give us a little bit of your background? I know you have an extensive bio. I, I just gave the shortened version, but you have amazing credentials. And also maybe just kind of give us a little bit of a segue into how did you get into this situation that you found yourself in in 2018? Yeah, and... Um, um, so I'm a medical oncologist and a hematologist. What that means is I take care of patients who uh, are uh, or were affected by cancer. And I developed a special expertise and interest in a form of cancer called non-Hodgkin lymphoma or lymphoma in general, Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin. Uh, lymphomas are forms of cancers that involve the lymph glands, which we all have in our bodies. And somehow these lymphomas um, affect the immune system, the bone marrow, which is the actual storage area of our cells. And there are so many types of, of uh, lymphomas um, that exist. We have learned over the years the different types of, uh, of lymphomas. Now, as you mentioned, I'm board certified in internal medicine, uh, in hematology, and in medical oncology. And um, I've uh, practiced uh, to care of patients for close to 20 years. Uh, I since left the University of Chicago, and I currently uh, work leading research uh, efforts um, at Keras Life Sciences, which is a company that really uh, focuses on molecular profiling, look at the cancer tumors, and whether there are particular mutations or targets that we could treat patients uh, against. I have never done expert witness work. Uh, this is not something that I actually liked to do or I wanted to do. Um, as probably your audience knows, um, occasionally physicians get on, get called to look into malpractice cases. Um, and I did not want to do that. I had really no interest in part of this. A, I did not have enough time. And B, frankly, there's a lot of nuance in taking care of patients and people. And sometimes medical records don't reflect that. But I was called to look into Roundup and the relationship between Roundup and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And um, 
I was not aware of that relationship. Uh, I was intrigued by the possibility because I've always seen Roundup all over the place, in Walmart, Home Depot, anywhere you go to. And um, I thought to myself, is, is it possible that there may be a relationship? And if the relationship is really indeed there, there's a lot of implications uh, for that. So I've agreed to review the evidence, look at the literature. And uh, after uh, I did that, I agreed to serve as an expert witness on behalf of the patients that were suing Monsanto the company that manufactures and sells Roundup, uh, alleging that their cancer, which was non-Hodgkin lymphoma, was caused by their spraying. And uh, I testified in the first three cases against Monsanto. One was in 2018 and two were in 2019. How many patients were a part of those lawsuits? Well, um, the lawsuits that I... uh, testified in in court. The first one was, uh, again, one patient, uh, Johnson, uh, Duane Johnson. The second one was the Hardeman versus Monsanto. And the third one was a couple, a man and his wife, um, uh, the Piliads against Monsanto. Um, I did testify recently in another uh, case, um, uh, but uh, uh, this case is not concluded yet. Uh, But uh, to answer your point, probably, there have been a lot of additional cases. Mm -hmm. And Bayer, which is now the parent company of Monsanto, Bayer bought Monsanto, settled over 100,000 cases for over $11 billion. It's considered one of the largest product liability lawsuits in U.S. history. And um, there are other cases that were not settled. Either the patients did not wish to settle, they opted out of the settlement, or Bayer did not offer them the settlement, Monsanto. But there's over 100,000 patients that have been um, affected by lymphoma, and uh, they were part of the settlement. This does not mean that all of these 100,000 cases obviously went to court, but just means there's a lot of patients that were involved. So 100,000, just to reiterate, just with the over 100,000, just with the lymphoma concerns. That's not, I mean, there could potentially be other health effects, but this was just around the lymphoma issue. This is just with non-Hodgkin lymphoma specifically. And um, it's actually interesting what you mentioned, Jill, because um, there could be other health effects, and um, who knows, right? There are um, lots of studies out there on endocrine disruption, the possibility of affecting infertility. Is it possible there may be relation to autoimmune diseases and things like that? Um, I did not look into this, uh, so obviously I cannot opine on these areas, but certainly you could... Uh, it's worthy of investigation. There are some papers on this. A lot of people are interested in it because, again, Roundup is in our soil everywhere that we actually consume food. Uh, So you could certainly, um, it is legit to have concerns, but uh, I did not investigate or look into anything besides non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Yes, that makes sense. Because that's your your specialty. So that's, I understand that's why you'd be called in. Yeah. Um, And just, I, 
I think I'm almost positive that most people listening to this are familiar with Roundup because it's so ubiquitous. But just in case you, you aren't, it is a uh, herbicide that you can buy at Lowe's or Home Depot or any garden store or Walmart. Uh, and they also use it in commercial farming. And so it's probably one of the most um, common herbicides. And it's purported to be safe, 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 safe. They say all the time, it's so safe. Don't worry about it. Um, and so that's so it, it, is, it is literally the most common. Yes. It is, it is the most used weed killer yes. in the world. Yes. Um, I have a family member who was who sold Roundup and other chemicals for a living. And I remember having conversations with him and sharing my concerns. And he was like, and he was sharing what they told him as a salesman, right? And it was just like, you could drink it. It would be fine. Like, this is the most harmless chemical in the whole world. Um, so yeah, and that's, it's just everywhere. And, and there are some now genetically modified crops, the Roundup Ready crops that are, you know, um, created in the lab. So you can spray like alfalfa, you can spray a field with Roundup and it kills the weeds, but it doesn't harm the alfalfa. And that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother realm of, um, interesting effects, but yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. But that, that, is, that is why, that is why the use of Roundup just skyrocketed in the mid nineties. Because that's really, to your point, that's really when Roundup Ready seeds became available. Yes. So the farmers now are not concerned anymore. They can actually spray on corn, on soybean, on alfalfa, and then you, they can still harvest. And it doesn't really affect their harvest. So the use of Roundup in the mid-90s when Roundup Ready seeds became available skyrocketed. And guess who manufactured the Roundup Ready seeds? Monsanto, right? Yes. There you yes. Go. Yep. There you go. So they have the Roundup and the Roundup Ready Seeds. Yes. And it's perfect, it's perfect. right? I mean, yeah. you, you sell the weed killer and you sell the seeds and all of this. And, 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 and the thing is, you're actually absolutely correct. The salespeople and a lot of people who use it, they were under the impression that you can actually drink oh, it. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> like, it is so safe. Yep. And uh, I, you know, maybe the cynical, uh, the cynical person in me, Let's just make sure every employee of Monsanto yeah. drinks it. That's right. fine. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> yep. I mean, show yep. me. <laughs> Drink it in yep. front of me. <laughs> yep, totally. So that brings up a great question of what What did the exposure look like with these um, individuals? I know, I know there's a, a huge number, but the ones that you were in contact with, how much exposure did they have to start to have this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma concern? Because I know, I mean, obviously not every single person who's used Roundup ever in their life develops lymphoma. So there's got to be no, some no. variables there. What did you find those variables to be? Good question. And I could tell you that, you know, and I've said that, I've testified this on the, in this understand and in depositions that we nobody will ever claim that every person who sprays Roundup is going to get cancer or non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And we also never said that all non-Hodgkin lymphomas are caused by Roundup. What we are saying that Roundup could cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma in some patients who are using it. I think what was uh, what I became convinced with after reviewing the evidence and after reviewing the literature is that there's something called dose response. What that means is the more you use a product, the higher the risk of developing the non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It's intuitive, right? I mean, you know, if, you know, I think it's the more you use of a harmful thing, the more likely you might get affected by this. 
What I think we don't know is what is the minimum safe or maximum. Like, I don't think the literature is very clear on that. There were a couple of papers that suggested if you use it um, more than 10 days in a lifetime, your risk of developing non-Hodgkin lymphoma could double. Now, this doesn't mean, again, your risk doubles, but it doesn't mean it's certain, but the risk increases. And there was a, a, a paper that was also looked at the yearly use, and they suggested more than two days per year uh, will actually increase the the, the mm. risk. Um, so, so I, I think for your audience, probably what we the conclusion is: the more use, the higher the risk. I don't think the literature is conclusive. What is the minimum safe amount? But what we probably should mention, it's important to use protective attire because the way Roundup works is it gets absorbed through the skin. Yes. Uh, Roundup, as you mentioned, Jill, the main ingredient is glyphosate. It is usually uh, mixed with surfactants. Surfactants are these materials that lead to increased absorption through the skin, but the reason it's used so it could adhere to the soil and it just like could be actually on, on the weeds, could attach to the weeds and be able to kill the weeds. And there's some water and other ingredients. So, um, so basically, the, um, um, you have to use protective gears because you don't want this to come to your skin, to your face, because it could get be very absorbed and it could cause problems. You know, uh, interestingly, um, Monsanto, during court uh, uh, proceedings, they've actually admitted uh, that they have never conducted long-term carcinogenicity studies on Roundup, on Roundup. So carcinogenic studies is basically deciding whether the product could cause uh, cancer. But they always say, we have done uh, studies on glyphosate. Mm. But they're very careful of saying we haven't, and they've actually, this is in court proceedings. And as your listeners know, all of the court proceedings are public. They're, you know, this public court it was not. Uh, so, so, so the idea is, well, glyphosate, Roundup is not just glyphosate alone. It has other material and Roundup is Roundup. It has several other compounds. So by saying you have not done long-term carcinogenic studies on Roundup, uh, you really can't tell. And uh, Donna Farmer, who is one of the toxicologists, who is a big defender of uh, Roundup, she works for Monsanto. She is articulate and a good speaker, so she has been coached very well, I would say. Uh, she has said in an email that was made public uh, in court that we cannot say that we, we don't have any long-term carcinogenic studies on Roundup and causing cancer. This was, you know, again, admission from Monsanto. Interesting. So they're they're using that loophole, to, uh, the the uh, vernacular there to kind of trip people up. But there ha- have there been long term studies on glyphosate in particular that would show carcinogenic effects. There has been some studies. Um, so, uh, and I detailed that in my book. Um, but basically. Um, uh, some of the to, to take your audience a little bit to, to the to the uh, down memory lane with history uh, because I think it's important. Yes. So um, 
any company that manufactures uh, pesticides, they need to go through a certain regulatory process and uh, they have to submit what they call registration studies to the EPA. There's a particular um, uh, department within the EPA. So Monsanto, as well as other companies, used a lab called IBT, IBT Labs. And IBT Labs actually was a lab in Chicago, where I live. It's actually the headquarters, uh, or not far from my house, apparently. IBT Lab turned out to be a fraudulent lab. So I am sure your audience will go and Google IBT Labs, and and they will find out that the um, the founder of IBT Lab was a pathologist from Northwestern University that eventually they made up data. So the lab actually made up data. So the data that led the EPA to register glyphosate was fraudulent. Now, this affected more than one company, affected other companies, not just Monsanto, by the way. But basically, that was the data that was relied upon by the EPA. And the EPA, after this was discovered, and by the way, these founders were prosecuted, and you can find all of the information. Mm. They're publicly available. They requested additional studies. They said, okay, well, the, the original EPA classification of glyphosate, that it was oncogenic. It was possibly could cause cancer. And they were requesting additional studies from Monsanto. With time, these studies were never done. And somehow, the EPA dropped their request. So that compound was moved in from possibly oncogenic to completely safe without any additional information that the EPA should rely on. There was another study It was, I think it's famously called the mouse study, where mice were actually fed glyphosate at increased doses. And it turns out that the more doses the mice get, they will develop certain tumors. Mm, So uh, versus the mice that were not given glyphosate, uh, they were exposed to glyphosate. So... um, you know, the pathologists were discovering tumors in the mice that were getting glyphosate versus the mice that were not getting glyphosate. And the EPA saw this, and that was, again, part of the reason why they classify as possibly oncogenic. Monsanto protested that these findings, and they said, well, we don't really believe that this is the case. We need to hire our own pathologist who's going to look at the slides and look at the tumors and And he will find out that there were no cancer or there were tumors in the placebo group or whatever in the, in the group, in the mice that were not exposed. Sure enough, this is what happened. So they brought their own expert who apparently found a tumor in the mice that were not exposed Mm. and accordingly this nullified or vindicated glyphosate from causing any problems. There's a lot of shady things there that uh, were happening, but I think that, um, you know, what, what I've learned is that um, some of the behavior uh, suggests that there's just something going on there, and we need to really look under the hood scientifically. Yeah. And when you look at the science, you have looked at the animal studies, you look at the mechanistic studies, like, is there really mechanistic way by which glyphosate indeed causes problems and causes cancer. It breaks the DNA, causes the chromosomes to be affected. 
And are there human studies? Is there any reason? And you put all of this together because science is not always straightforward. It's not always yes. straightforward. I mean, how many times have you gone to a doctor and they saw you, they examined you, and they said, well, I'm not 100% sure, but let's try this and see how you feel. Call me in three yes. days. I mean, it just sometimes it's not really things are not just straightforward. So when you look at the science, you have to really realize that let me just evaluate all of the information that I have. Let me look at the totality of evidence and come up with a conclusion. That is what's really important. So um, I just shared these stories with you because I think it's really important to put things in context as you look at the evidence. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's super helpful. Um, it's fascinating that such a big product, such a popular chemical would have so seemingly so little due diligence done on the back end. Like it just seems like, I mean, wow, you'd think that had been tested and retested and checked and double checked, and it doesn't appear that that was the case in, in the approval process. Yeah, I mean, that the hope was that more tests is being done, but it's not. I think that the trials have led to few wins, and we can go through the trials if you want, but basically there's a promise supposedly that Roundup will not be available in the U.S. markets for residential use, that if you are a pesticide applicator or a farmer, you can have access to Roundup, but um, uh, Bayer uh, issued a press release that they are going to withdraw Roundup for residential use uh, from the U.S. market in 2023. It's still there. We're halfway in yeah. 2023, but that's what they said. But they said actually in their press release, and your audience could go to Bayer's website and they can see all of these, by the way. But in that press release, they did not admit any guilt. Mm. They said, we just want to do this because of litigation, uh, because it can minimize litigation. So that's what they decided okay. to do. We don't know what's going to be replaced. We actually don't know. Right. I think it's important to know because... You have to know it's, it's going to be replaced by something worse. Right. Uh, I think we should know. And also the EPA was asked by court. So the court, the I believe the Ninth Circuit or some court, asked the EPA to re-review the evidence on glyphosate with the idea that maybe some evidence was not reviewed in a very methodical manner. So the EPA was supposed to do that and to issue a new opinion. We have not seen that as of yet. So it will be very interesting to, to see what the EPA review of the evidence uh, will be. <clears throat> it was supposed to be issued in October or November 2022, but I think they're running sure. behind. Yeah. That feels like, it's interesting to me that they are, you know, promising they'll take it off the market. That feels like such a huge deal for that to happen. I mean, we'll see. I'm, I'm curious to see if that actually happens. They're going to lose, I mean, feels like a lot of revenue if they do that. It feels like a big leap for them. So See. Yeah, but remember, it's just for residential. Just residential use. It's yeah. a lot of loss. Yeah, it's a lot of loss. You're right, but maybe replaced by something else right. they have. It's gonna overset over. Uh, but but also, it still hasn't been removed despite all of this. But that's what we were. Talking. Yeah, that's fascinating. What have we left behind in our race towards progress? That's the question that I set out to answer in my latest book old-fashioned on purpose. 
It's no secret to people like you and I that something is rippling through humanity at the moment. More and more people are feeling pulled and called to cast aside the baggage of modern life in favor of something more meaningful. To me, an old-fashioned on-purpose life is an awakening. It's a remembering. It's a returning to what matters. And it's available to everyone, whether you have a homestead or not. So the book isn't out yet. It's going to hit shelves on September 26th. But if you pre-order right now, I've put together a kind of outrageous package of bonuses. There's a never-before-seen sourdough ebook. There's home dairy guides. There's printable wall art, uh, a virtual meet and greet, all kinds of stuff. And you can get that right away. So if you want to check it out, get all the details, head on over to Old fashionedbook.com. You can see the cover, you can check out the bonuses, and I can't wait for you to hold it in your hands. All right, now back to our episode. Back to the trial. I mean, there's so many questions. I know it was such, it was a big event, so I, I don't expect you to give us every play-by-play, but I'm just kind of curious because some of the highlights, like what, when you were in court listening to this, what was Monsanto saying to defend themselves? Look, the, um, I call it the playbook of Monsanto. Um, I think with time, having been involved in these now since 2016, spring of 2016, when I first got called, it's hard to believe it's been over seven years, actually, but it has been. I yeah. think the playbook, whenever they have somebody that challenges them, the first thing they try to do is to discredit the witness. They want to find ways to make sure that the jury does not believe you. Because if you lose the jury, ultimately, if you lose the jury, you've lost the case. So if they're able to convince the jury somehow that you are not a credible witness, you are not somebody that should be believed, then it does not matter what you say afterwards. Your opinions won't matter because they were able to actually convince that. So there is definite strategy in how do we actually discredit that expert witness to make sure that the jury does not believe what he says. It's a strategy that's done by both sides, right? I mean, if you're on the patient side, you want to discredit the Monsanto witness. The second piece is putting their hat on the regulatory agencies, the EPA, EPA, EPA. If the EPA said it's safe, then it must be safe. The EPA must be Basically, it's the final ruler in the land. What they say is absolutely correct. And they rely on other regulatory agencies in Europe, Canada, and all of this. What what that misses is that we all know, you, myself, and the listeners, and the viewers, that these regulatory agencies could be politically biased. They could have a lot of bias, and they don't always make the right choice. Just because the EPA said something is safe, it does not mean it's 100% safe. And I think we should do the due diligence. And we have to look under the hood and see what studies and what information these regulatory authorities relied upon to make that decision. Is it possible that there has been some, you know, behind-the-door kind of discussions between the manufacturer and the EPA. And I, in my book, I actually detail some uh, some possibilities that there actually may be some issues going on between the EPA and Monsanto. It was not 100% sure, but I do think there was some smoke. And if there's smoke, maybe there's fire somewhere. So the EPA 
piece is really uh, important. And the third thing that they always uh, relied on is they try to tell you that the patients that are suing them, why they are very sympathetic to their diagnosis and to what they went through, you cannot prove that it caused the cancer in this particular individual. Um, it went back and forth like crazy, even as they were appealing the verdict and everything. They keep saying, well, Dr. Nabhan and others did not suggest that it could be idiopathic. So idiopathic for your audience basically is we don't know why it happened. So, um, you know, basically, can you really tell me that this patient may not have had this cancer because of chance? Because we just don't know. And my answer to this, well, of, of, of course, if you can't find the reason, you would say it's by chance. I don't know. But if you have a possible reason, you can't ignore it. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, again, imagine a heavy smoker that develops lung cancer. You cannot say, well, I'm not going to buy into lung cancer being caused by the heavy smoking and just ignore it. So playbook, discredit the witness. Talk about the EPA and the regulatory authorities. Then question the fact that no matter what, you cannot link this material to the cancer in this particular individual. The fourth strategy that they sometimes do is discredit the plaintiff himself or herself. So, for example, they go into a, you know, are you sure you sprayed that much? Do you have receipts? Can we see it around the bottles? I'm like, that's crazy. If you were thinking yeah. you're just using something safe you're not going to remember so but you know that you've done it let me give you an example just for your listeners yeah. so I, I like to drink tea now i don't know how much tea i've drank in the past year if you ask me do you drink tea i'm like yes do you drink tea every day i may say probably every day or every other day but yeah i drink tea but i cannot probably quantify how much tea i drank in the past year because i believe tea is very safe it's actually right. very, uh, very good, and I, I like it. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna really uh, quantify it. But now contrast this, let's say, with blood transfusion. I'm not, blood transfusion is very safe, but it's not drinking tea. So you know, you probably, if you, if somehow you require a blood transfusion, you may, you may notice that you, I, I've gotten three times blood transfusion in my life because it's just not a usual event. Sure. So people have grown to recognize that Roundup is like safe. You can drink it. It's fine. They're not going to really keep track of, you know, they remember they bought it. They remember they used it. They probably remember their pattern of use. Well, I, you know, I usually spray twice a month or something. But they have that possibility sometimes of questioning the, the, the witness. And then, uh, you know, I mean, there's like a playbook they go through methodically and, um, it's not easy to stand up to them, let me tell you. I imagine. I imagine it was, yeah, that was quite the experience. Have you had any, um, how do I say this? I mean, you're in the medical field and Bayer and Monsanto are related. And have you had any pushback from colleagues or those in your profession for standing up against them? Uh, I mean, obviously, Monsanto did uh, retain experts who are also medical oncologists who actually who actually testified on their behalf sure and i've always said and i maintain that uh, i respect these 
people. Uh, they are very well credentialed and they are obviously uh, very well respected in the field. Um, they're probably way smarter than me. That's totally fine. But I disagree with them on that particular thing. Uh, I don't see eye to eye uh, with them. And so I respectfully disagree with them. Um, there was no like real pushback in, in terms of, well, we're not going to talk to him. We're not going to communicate with him. That hopefully doesn't, it doesn't get to that. Uh, but I certainly do not agree with their stance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm thankful that you were brave enough to to stand up and say so. Um, that's, that's big. But it wasn't just me. I just want to make sure we give credit to a lot of other folks. This was not, this was not, Chadi Nabhan, this is really, there are a lot yeah. of, there's a big legal team behind these patients. The patients who persevered all of the questioning and all of the issues with Monsanto. And there were other experts that also testified uh, on behalf of these patients. Uh, but I was the only medical oncologist. Yeah. Yeah. Were these patients, were they using Roundup in a commercial setting? Like, were they farmers or were they just using it in a more residential situation? So the first case with Johnson against Monsanto, uh, Johnson was a groundskeeper in mm. California. So he would actually, he used it professionally. Uh, so he would spray the schoolyards uh, and he would spray five days a week, every actually week. And uh, he started spraying in, 20, um, in, in 24, in 20. Uh, I forgot, basically two years before he was diagnosed, but he was okay. spraying a lot. He was yeah. spraying a lot five days a week, and he had several spilling events where he actually just completely hosed by it. And he would go and shower, and, and he would tell you, and he actually gave a lot of interviews and testified. Basically, he, you know, he took some classes as part of this to be hired as a groundskeeper, and they told him how safe it is. And what Johnson did, actually, and I detail that in the book as well, he actually called Monsanto when he started developing a rash on his skin, which turned out to be cancer at the end. Mm. He called Monsanto because he, he, like, he, he couldn't understand why this was going on. So he actually did call the company. And his call was routed to a medical director who was in charge of responding to these concerns. And he never got a call back. Um, I mean, you would think uh, customer service 101 is at least call the person back and talk to him. Yeah. Never got called back because he was very suspicious when this actually happened. And he actually used protection like he, he would wear a suit and he would wear all of that. But um, um, it's uh, it's very unfortunate. So this was this was in a professional setting. The Hardeman case, which was the second case, which uh, was in a residential setting. And the third case was the patient and his wife who developed the same kind of lymphoma, except hers was in the brain and his was in the body, mm. uh, was also residential use, was not really uh, agricultural use. Okay. Man, when you have a husband and wife develop like that side by side, that seems especially suspicious. You know, that, that it's, no, there's no, a common and Monsanto, correlation. Yeah. And, and you know what Monsanto did for this one? Because on the stand, what I said, I said exactly what you did. I said, yeah. I said, it's kind of suspicious when you have a husband and a wife that they live together, they develop the same kind of cancer, lymphoma. Yeah. It's common sense to ask, what is the common denominator that both may have been exposed to? So yeah. Monsanto, in their appeal of that verdict, 
they, they tried to say, well, Dr. Nabhan is not relying on any evidence. He's saying it's just common sense. Oh, you, yeah. I even say that. <laughs> and, and, common sense doesn't count. <laughs> but but, but they, they're trying to say that, you know, that I just used common sense to make it, to reach a conclusion, which is not what I said. I said common sense when you have two people living in the same household. Um, so the judges in the, the appellate court, they said, this is not what he said. We read his testimony and this is not what he said. So, um, uh, I feel, I felt vindicated when they actually rejected their appeal. They lost yes. the appeal. Yes. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so in those three cases, the Monsanto was guilty, right? In all, in yes. all three of those? Yes. In all and, three of those. Yeah. What was kind of the smoking gun, if you will, that eventually convinced the court to declare that verdict against Monsanto? So the jury was convinced with the evidence that was presented. I think that, um, you know, the first case was probably the toughest. It was the first case. And it was also the case where there was a lot of um, evidence that was not always shown to the jury. So as you probably know, I actually learned this. I did not know this before. But the jury doesn't always see all of the evidence. So basically, there's a lot of effort and there's a lot of strategy between both sides to determine what do you show and not show the jury. So can you really, yeah, so for example, the judge has to decide what the jury is allowed to actually uh, see and what they are not allowed to see. So what you put into evidence. Mm. So. So the first case, they were not seeing everything. And I think the second case, they saw more. So I think that, I think uh, the jury really saw uh, enough information where Monsanto did not, uh, they concealed some facts. They also had some ghost writing. So there were scientific articles that Monsanto contributed to, but they did not acknowledge that they did. There were a lot of article written, articles written about that. And, uh, you know, it's ultimately the jury. I mean, uh, look, Monsanto did win subsequent cases, by the way, after these three cases. But, um, uh. it, yeah, because, but, but, you know, it's pretty interesting when you look at some of these cases that Monsanto won, because it's the devil is in the details, and you'll have to really know who are the patients, because they settled over 100,000 cases. In other words, if you're paying over $11 billion, as far as I'm concerned, you're guilty. Innocent people do not pay over $11 billion, yeah. right? I mean, there's I'm something innocent. going on. I'm innocent, yeah. but I'm going to give you $11 billion because I like you. Now, that's yeah. not how it works. No. But uh, I think they became very strategic. So they actually do go to court when they think they may win because they, depending on, on where the case is, which state, which city, what is the jury pool, what is the likelihood of winning. It became like a chess match, like it's very strategic at this point. Because on one side, some of the plaintiffs, some of the plaintiff lawyers may take very weak cases, right? You and I just said, not everybody that sprays is going to get lymphoma. Yeah. So it's possible some of these cases were weak cases where there's really no link, but the plaintiff lawyers thought maybe they can actually convince the jury. And then Monsanto thought that the case is weak, and the jury, uh, the, the jurisdiction or the jury selection is going to be in their favor. Maybe they're more like uh, sympathetic to the defense or something like that. 
So then they decide to take the case to court. But you have to step back and look at everything to reach the conclusion. As far as I'm concerned, Roundup could cause lymphoma in some patients, and Monsanto is guilty of that because they could easily put a warning. They could easily warn the public. Everybody, you can go and buy a pack of cigarettes right now, can't you? Yep. But you, but you yep. know the risk, and so you, you, you make a decision. We are all entitled to make a choice. Yes. But to make a choice, you need information. And in Absolutely. my view, they did not volunteer this information to the public. And that is the key. The jury were able to see in these three cases that any way you look at it, there were information that these people were entitled to, and the company that made the product did not provide this information. Fascinating. And so to this day, is, are there warning labels on Roundup? No. Unfortunately, unfortunately Just, there is no okay. warning label. And I could tell you that is part of the reason I wrote the book. I really wanted everybody to know about this. I mean, you know, one of the things that, that led me to, to write it was in the second uh, trial, in the Hardiman case, the lawyer for Monsanto was telling me, well, Dr. Naban, you know, um, you, you're telling me that Roundup could cause non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I don't really see you going around the country and lecturing on it. I don't see you telling students and fellows and all of these people. And he was right. I wasn't doing this because I didn't think I could. I actually yeah. thought if there's an actual trial that is ongoing and I'm an expert witness on it, I'm not allowed to do this. So sure. I told him I didn't think I can. He said, no, no, you can. And that word, when he said that, stuck in my brain. I'm like, okay, I will. And I will. the first thing to do <laughs> was to write a book that everybody could read. So, so yes, I mean, I think, I think that, uh, unfortunately, there is no warning label, but we, we have to tell people as much as possible and share the knowledge. And I still hope that it will be withdrawn as promised in 2023 from residential use. We, we have to take any small win that we can get. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I think even beyond that, though, that's, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with the internet, but one of the beautiful things about the internet is it does give information to people that they might not have had before. So I think just you being out there, putting your story out there, writing the books, having the podcast is really important. So maybe, I mean, late labels or not, whether it's still on the Walmart shelves or not, we're, we're, you know, knowledge is power. We're giving that to folks. And I think that's key. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with yeah. you hundred percent. Yeah. So how has this whole experience over these number of years, how has it influenced your buying decisions, what you eat, what you do in, in terms of health? Has it changed any of your actions on a day-to-day basis? It should change it more. The problem is is availability and what's out there. In the, I mean, it's, it's all over. It's really yeah. all over, right? Um, I think that I'd like to consume organic food where I can. Uh, I think that the hope is that uh, you're able to um, have less exposure to pesticides in the food. Um, Sometimes you may not have access to it. Sometimes you can. Uh, Not everybody also can get organic food on the spot. I mean, there's other things, but I certainly would like to to do more of that when I can, and I have. Um, I think I have less trust in our regulatory authorities. Yeah. Um, 
I, I'm surprised by uh, the EPA's decision and things like that. And um, I also was a little bit surprised that um, in the legal proceedings, I thought there would be more transparency for the jury. Um, I always felt if I was in the jury box, you have to give me all the information if you right. want to be truthful in making the decision. I did not realize how uh, strategic is what is put into evidence versus not. But in terms of my behavior is I think that the, the one thing I could do is really changing some of my diet to consume more organic food. Um, and I have done that. But the problem in recommending this to everybody is because you and I know that not everybody can. Mm -hmm. So it's always challenging to to be forceful and tell whether you must consume organic food because, well, what if they can't? What, I mean, so we have to be sympathetic to the possibilities and to the availability. Um, and aside from that, I remain hopeful. Maybe there is something else that could come to market where there's a herbicide or a pesticide that is safer. I mean, we deserve safer products to consume. have not seen such a thing on the market yet, but I... Yeah. Hopefully, research and science could get us that. Yeah. And I know these these trials that you participated in were in more relation to the Roundup coming through the skin and affecting the patients that way. But in your travels and all your knowledge, do you know of, of any studies that speak to the effects of consuming it? Like if a vegetable or a fruit or a plant has been sprayed, like even wheat. I know wheat is often sprayed. Um, and then we take the wheat, we grind the wheat into flour. The effects of that on our bodies, is it? Um, as much of a concern, I'm assuming so, as going through our skin as us ingesting it? Yeah. Uh, I think it's very possible. I think the studies that have been published were mainly through skin exposure and going through the skin. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and is it and through spraying it? Is it possible that um, it is um, also causing, again, non-cancer stuff, like we talked, autoimmune disease, right. uh, other things? You know, gluten intolerance that happened not because of celiac disease. I mean, other things. I mean, there's there are certain diseases that were not present 40 years ago that people are just going through right now. So yes. I'm very open-minded to that possibility. I just have not seen or come across a lot of scientific literature in the peer-reviewed literature that have discussed that. And, um, and some of it is because the difficulty of conducting this research um, uh, and on other elements, but I certainly sure. would not dismiss that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I know for my audience, there's, especially as we're learning more about <clears throat> soil health here on some recent episodes, I think there's enough reason to just not spray it for the sake of your soil microbes. And then, you know, just not getting on your skin is icing on the cake or not consuming it. So lots of reasons to avoid it and look for alternate solutions in all the realms. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. You didn't agree more. Yeah. Do you feel, this is my, my last question, I think, for you. Do you, I feel like sometimes looking out and, and watching Monsanto, it feels like they have monopolies on all the things and nothing sticks to them and they always get away. Do you feel like those tides will ever turn? Do you feel like these movements will start to kind of make their foundation crumble or make them be accountable? Like, what's your, what's your feeling on that? Well, they have, you know, again, I mean, they paid a lot of money. They were bought by Bayer. Bayer stock price went down by two thirds. If you look at the Bayer stock price when they actually bought before they bought Monsanto, it was in the forties. It's okay. now about fourteen. It went down significantly. Mm. They lost a lot of market cap. 
there was a lot of demonstration against Bayer in Germany. The CEO lost the confidence vote. He actually was stepped down. There's a new CEO that's starting on June 1st. Um, economics sometimes is a very good punishment to large corporate. Yeah. Uh, Bayer stocks have not recovered. I think Bayer made a very, very uh, wrong decision. The Wall Street Journal, um, various reporters who covered the acquisition, they actually claimed that this was one of the worst decisions that was w- worst acquisition they saw in corporate America. So wow. I, I think that is, that is uh, important. I think in terms of the larger picture of the tide will shift, I really hope so. But um, look, um, our politicians, um, let's face it, they, you know, there's a reason why, there's a reason why there's a career for lobbyists yeah. in, in Washington. I mean, people, literally, their job is to be on the hill every day and they lobby for things. And you pay them money and they go and get the votes and get things like that. I certainly hope that uh, people will advocate and be unified and 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 write to the to Congress and to the elected officials when there are concerns. Um, it's a marathon; it's not a sprint. So yeah. we should keep our eyes on the prize. We should take every small win that we can get, um, and um, and and I think we should the per- perseverance. Just uh, stay the course and and see what happens. So, yes, I am optimistic that the tide will shift. There are history will tell us there are many situations where we thought uh, a corporate giant was not, um, uh, you know, cannot crumble and they crumbled. So um, yeah. we'll see. We'll have just to stay the course and see what happens. Yeah. Well, that's a, a great way to conclude, I think. Um, before we go, can you tell us a little bit more about your book? I know it's Toxic Exposure. Is that the title? Is that correct? Yes, it's called uh, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. It awesome. is uh, the book that depicts the story of the first three trials that uh, I testified in. There's a lot of behind the scenes, lots of courtroom drama depositions. I think uh, it's a medical legal thriller, but it's actually a true story. And it's told uh, in, a, in an easy way. It is not written in a medical language or a legal language, so everybody will be able to understand it. So uh, hopefully your audience will check it out and look forward to hearing from everybody what they thought and their opinions. Yeah, I will say I, I flipped through a digital copy and it, I was pleasantly surprised i was thinking it was gonna be really heavy in science which is fine but i was like oh this is gonna this is like a story i'm like this looks really good so i'm excited to dive in yeah and it's available anywhere books are sold typical routes okay amazon barnes and noble or through my publisher's website my publisher johns hopkins university press Uh, so amazon barnes and noble johns hopkins university press um there's a link to all of these on my website they can go to my website shadinabhan.com as well and I've covered, I've covered the um, book a couple of times on my podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. My podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered, just uh, captures various healthcare topics uh, beyond just uh, this one, but I did have a couple of episodes on it. Okay, excellent. We're going to put all that in the show notes so you guys can go check all, out uh, the website and the podcast. Um, Dr. Nabhan, thank you so much. This was such a privilege to get to get a behind the scenes look. And um, I hope people are feeling more inspired than ever to do the best they can with their diets and their organic um, 
mission and, you know, just keep on keeping on. So thanks for providing us that little extra motivation. Thank you so much for your interest and keep up the amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much, Jill.